difficulties before we got started. We doing okay? Dead air, Jacqueline. Okay, we're good. Welcome to the beginning of the first three hours. Um, I was joking with Colin that I was wondering if people were purposefully not sharing praise and prayer because they knew that I was going to preach. <coughs> Hoping to be out of here at a decent hour. Uh, okay, so this is the month of May. And this month is my month to preach, and I'm going to be talking with you about the diversity of leadership styles, a subject that is near and dear to my heart because, um, well, as an eldership, we suffer through having multiple leadership styles, and we do that willingly and purposefully. Uh, and so it is something that we as a leadership wrestle with all the time, and one of the uh, most common accusations that I get as a leader is that I am non-conforming to other people's leadership styles. Um, today and this month, I'm going to tell you why. So, I really want to talk about the difference. When I'm talking about leadership style, I'm talking about the concept, really, of diversity. Diversity in leadership, diversity in uh, philosophy, uh, ideology, all of these different concepts of diversity that come down to a person's style. Now, as I do, um, I feel it's important to lay the groundwork for having that discussion. So we're not just going to start talking about leadership styles. We are going to talk today about what it really means to have a diverse Christian uh, outworking. And next week, we're going to be talking about the Trinity. And then from there, we're going to start talking about um, leadership styles. So I would encourage you to take notes because we're building a foundation today. So first of all... Um, <coughs> How many of you know that humans are designed by God? Okay. So most people think that humans are designed by God. You would be correct. Uh, most people in this room think that humans are designed by God. Every person is, in fact, designed by God. Every person is custom-made by God. Um, and that that custom-making, that custom-making that we are, is not something that is um, sort of uh, put in a printing press and then uh, put out there. It's something where we, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a sort of diminished example, but we're handmade by God. Uh, so what I mean by that is that God has a conceptual design for every single person in this room, every one of you. Doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how small you are. It doesn't matter how insignificant you think you are, or vice versa, how significant you think you are. God has custom designed each and every one of you to have a particular um, outworking in life. Even down to the straight events of our life. God knows what they are. God makes sure that certain things happen. Um, and he does this even before we are even formed. This is, part of the, this is part of the conversation in regard to abortion, for instance. You boys know what abortion is over there, Aiden? Do you guys know what abortion is? Okay, because we're talking about it right now if you want to join the class. So 
even down to abortion, this is why we have this conversation about abortion in general, because the concept is that God, God has formed all of us, even before we were born. And this is a custom design. Speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, God says this, uh, specifically about Jeremiah, but it applies to all of us. In Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I formed you. Listen to the wording of that. I knew you before I formed you. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. God had a plan for Jeremiah before he even gave him his body. Jesus reiterates this. It's not just about Jeremiah. Jeremiah isn't special in this way. Jesus reiterates this in Luke chapter 12. He says, And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, because we are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. The very head, the hairs on our head are numbered. God knows each one of them. In other words, we're not by accident, and we don't just come to be. We are something that God has custom designed. So let's remember that we are designed by God. We are special. And that is the beginning of this conversation when we're talking about style and leadership. We have to understand that we are all special. We all are unique. We have a part to play. Beyond being special and unique and having a part to play, we are made in God's image. We are the image bearers of God. So what's the significance of being made in God's image? Our nature is gifted with certain qualities that God's personality is rich in. That's what that means. Our nature is gifted with certain qualities, our meaning human beings, our nature is gifted with certain qualities that God's personality is rich in. And that applies to all of you. It applies to the smallest child in this room, to the oldest person in this room. Every one of you is gifted with unique qualities and with a custom life that God has planned for you. There are many things that universally humans resonate with that come from that specific truth, the idea that we're all made in God's image. Paul specifically describes our virtues in reflecting on this when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So if we go to Galatians 5.22 and we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, you should all have this memorized, but the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22, it says this, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he says this, against these things, there is no such law. That's a really interesting idea. It's a really interesting concept. Against things like love and joy and patience, peace. There's no laws against those things. We make laws against all sorts of other things, but not against those. Why do you think that is? The reason why is because human beings are created to resonate with those things because they are part of the personality of who God is, and we are made in his image. So when we see things like love, we innately see God. 
we also see ourselves. What we do is we call these things virtues. These are called virtues. Something, a word which is pretty much unknown in this day and age. Virtues. So, not all of these virtues manifest themselves the same way. So all of these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? All of these things, they don't manifest themselves the same way. Love can look different. Joy can look different. Peace can look different. And so this is also talked about by the Apostle Paul. He alludes to this in the first book of Corinthians. He says that all virtues are God-given, and they're a product of being made in his, in his image, and they're universally resonant. That said, we all have certain giftings that, in 1 Corinthians, that talks about how we interact with those resonant ideas. So, some, like a person with the gift of mercy is going to be loving in a more merciful way than a person who has the gift of prophecy, for instance. So, I want to be clear here. The idea is not that because we're made in God's image, anything we do is like God. There are certain ways in which when we resonate with the virtues of God, then we are in God's image. Then we bear his image better. In fact, if we think that because we're made in God's image, we are therefore, um, <clears throat> then anything we do is like God, then we're in big trouble. The fact is, is that we are far from actually acting like we are in the image of God. We are far from it. And all you have to do is watch the news to know that, right? You can watch the news for two minutes without, well, I would encourage you to try to watch the news for two minutes without hearing something that is negative that's happening, something about human behavior that is universally cringy. Try to watch the news for two minutes and, and go without hearing something cringy on the news about human behavior. The type of behavior that is both universally, um, that, that type of behavior can, is, is, is both universally appealing to us, while at the same time, it's also universally abhorrent to us. What do I mean by that? You, when you watch the news and you see something that is abhorrent, something that's bad, you're like, that's not universally appealing to me. But, of course, we are the same people who will go watch a horror movie, right? Right? And we think that's interesting. Do we like to be entertained by those bad things? Why? Because we are of two natures as human beings. Not just the image of God, but also something else. So, we all have these things that those people on the news, they get caught for. Right? Those people that are on the news, they get caught, and then we hear about it, and we're like, oh, I would never do that. But the truth is, is that we all have these things. We all have lusts. We all have vices. And we all understand them to be both universally appealing, while at the same time universally aberrant to um, what is good. These things are aberrant. They're twisted. They're off. They're like a Twilight Zone version of how things are. The scripture calls that type of behavior what? Sin, right? 
the scripture calls twisted, aberrant behavior sin. So we have two natures now. We have a godly nature, the image of God with which we all bear because we are made in that image and we all of us have that. We understand it. And then we also have and understand and bear a sinful nature. So sin, sin is an aberrant behavior. That's what it is. It's an aberrant behavior, a deviation from the true image of God in which we were created. So according to Romans, well, basically the 23s, 323 and 623, right? Those are, those are two power verses that are connected to each other and incidentally are on 23s. So according to Romans 3 and 623, we are both all sinners, and this has such significant outcomes for us that we are all condemned to death because of it. And, um, oh, I lost my place. We're all condemned to death because of it. Uh, so we're all sinners. And so because we're all sinners, that's why we can act different and in fact do act different than the gift of the image of God that we bear. Not everything that we do is in line with God's image, right? And that has been the case since the Garden of Eden. And since that time, a lie has been being given to God-fearing people. And that lie is basically that it's God who doesn't want to acknowledge our greatness. The lie that's been being given since Eden is that it is God who doesn't want to acknowledge our greatness, and that if we can only just learn to love ourselves, then all of our behavior will then become acceptable. And there will be no more aberrations because then everything will be permissible. Now this is the problem with modern psychology, for instance. Psychology is not bad in and of itself. The idea that, you know, there's patterns to the mind that we can understand when we explore them and so on and so forth. But the problem is when you get into things like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, what you're going to understand is that, and I'm thinking about dialectical behavioral therapy also, what you're going to understand is that what they basically are teaching you is that the problems you have are because you haven't come to accept yourself. And so any feeling that you have is okay. This is the lie that's been being told from the beginning of creation. Whole wings of Christianity tell this lie. Even to this day, whole wings of Christianity are established around that kind of redefinition of aberrant behavior. So-called movements that redefine the meaning of Christianity as an empowering. The purpose of Christianity is to then empower one's what? Self, right? I'm going to give you another term for it. One's lusts. The lust of the flesh. The pride of life. The lust of the eyes. Those were the three types of sins that Jesus was tempted with when he was tempted by Satan right before his ministry. There are whole wings of Christianity that are established specifically for the purpose of growing our ego, for tempting our lusts. Think about prosperity gospel. Think about what it does. Its whole purpose is to stir, stir 
our sense of covetousness. Think about the emergent church. The emergent church movement wanted to stir our sense of pride. Think about the current ones, like the social justice church. It's interesting how the church that is supposed to emphasize social justice is incredibly hateful. It stirs the sense of hate. Think about gay Christianity and the movement of gay Christianity and how it stirs and makes room for a sense of lust, aberrant lust. The list goes on and on and on. Our Christian journey is not about being ourselves and letting God love us because of who we are. Slogans of identity are touted to excuse the gap between our morals and our innate values. Sayings like, we were born this way. What do you think that is? We were born this way. That is theology, my friends. That is a theology. It's used to say something about God and you. We were born this way. It's new theology. Or how about God doesn't make mistakes? That's new theology. That's not just a cute saying. But that, of course, is A, bad theology. Because Christianity teaches that we need to not accept our birth into sin, but instead to be what? Born again. Right? Someone is telling you that we were born this way and therefore our actions are moral and innate? So? Our theology under Christ says that we are not to be celebrating our birth into our sin. We are to be born again. Because our birth into sin is a deviation We're supposed to reject our old nature in favor of his new one. So that's A. And then B, it's stupid logic. It's just stupid logic, plain and simple. There's an apologist that I like. His name is Mike Weir, and he puts it like this. Some people are just jerks. Some people are just jerks. So should we allow them to be jerks because they were born that way? What does our old birth have to do with our new life in Christ? Nothing. We call this acceptance of false teaching into our theology tolerance. And we celebrate the many different paths of this false teaching as diversity. But it's not. It is an aberrant, renegade theology. And those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this in verse 9. Don't you realize? Now understand he's talking to the church of Corinth, okay? The church of Corinth was a church that allowed people into their church who were practicing all sorts of aberrant renegade theology all the way from how they used their spiritual gifts and they used them to essentially be mean to each other and make themselves look better to each other, 
down to allowing there to be inappropriate sexual relationships between uh, like a, um, uh, a son-in-law and his mother-in-law. They had all sorts of renegade, aberrant theology that they were allowing. And so Paul, he says this to them, don't you realize that those who do wrong, wrong, morally wrong, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not fool yourselves. Those who indulge, pay attention, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty direct. Now listen to this. Some of you were once like that. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, there were people in the church who were practicing aberrant theology. They were practicing renegade Christianity. And they were calling themselves by that identity. And Paul comes in and he says, that is no longer your identity. And you have been made right with God. And therefore, you should no longer be that way. So, when we have a movement, for instance, like the gay Christian movement, I'm not making that name up, that is actually the name of the movement. When we have somebody like Matthew Vines, who's the most prominent speaker in the gay Christian movement, and who says, God accepts my homosexuality. Look, in 1 Corinthians, there were people in the church who were like that. Is that the context of what 1 Corinthians is saying? No. What 1 Corinthians is saying is, there were some people in the church who were like that. It was a bad thing. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. And look, in God's power, you have the ability to come out of that lifestyle and put to death who you once were so that you can be born again and renewed if your faith is in Christ. Aberrant behavior is not diversity. Aberrant behavior is not diversity. It is not stylistic to be having a renegade theology. It is not freedom in Christ. It is rebellion. It is hatred for God. It is shameful amongst fellow Christians. And one day, those who practice it will watch the Son of Men, descend from the clouds of heaven, not to call them his good and faithful servants, but instead to condemn them to the ranks of perdition where they have made their beds. Following Jesus is not about being ourselves. And if we're going to have a discussion about style, if we're going to have a discussion about diversity, we got to start here. 
following Jesus is not about being ourselves, but instead seeking to pattern ourselves, to conform ourselves, to discipline ourselves. Disciple, right? To discipline ourselves after Jesus, who is the perfect picture of how we were intended to be. And where love fits this, fits into this, is a moment tethered to the word despite. That's a powerful word here, despite. God loves us despite. God loves us not because he recognizes the merits of our character and celebrates and respects our identity politics and therefore loves us, but because he looks at who he created us to be despite who we portray him to be. And he frees us from the end result of our aberrant behavior, from our ugly version of him that we keep showing people and ourselves. Not because he loves who we are in and of ourselves, but because he loves who he created us to be, that which he knew before he even formed us in our mother's womb. To be clear, you are absolutely loved by God. Every single person. Absolutely loved by God. Despite your sin. Despite your ugliness. Despite the monsters that we are. You are loved by God despite your sin. And therefore, you cannot practice sin and warrant God's love. That is exactly what 1 Corinthians is saying. Do you not know these people will not inherit the kingdom of God? The wages of sin is death and God's holy disdain. You cannot affiliate yourself with a deviation from his vision and think that you can then convince him that he should love you as you are. And this is exactly the fight that is going on in our culture right now. God, I want to be clear about this, does not love you as you are. That's a scary statement to make. He loves you as he is. You're not the standard for God's love. You don't warrant God's love. You have no merit in and of yourself compared to God. He doesn't love you as you are or because you are. He loves you as he is. Because he is. And he loves you how he's made you to be and to reject what God has planned for you while calling him king in your life. To reject what God has planned for you while calling him king in your life to his face is stupid. It's a little like telling a cop 
that you respect him and that you're going to follow the rules while committing a crime in front of him. You know what happens if you do that in front of a king? You get beheaded. So what do you think is going to happen to you? You think that statement that I made, that God doesn't love you as you are, he loves you as he is, is a little harsh? Scripture says that Christ is going to descend upon the clouds and he is going to bring a sword from his mouth and he is going to throw those who stood in rebellion against him away. He's going to throw them into hell. He's going to say to those who have said, I've done these things in your name, get away from me. I don't know you. Well, that wouldn't be consistent with God's character if he just loved you for who you are on the basis of your own merit. Then he would be bound to letting anybody in. And now you have the rapists and the murderers hanging out in heaven, doing whatever they want to because God loves them. That's not a just God, and it's not the God who presents himself in Scripture. Our status as designed image bearers of God doesn't excuse our every action. This is where the conversation on diversity and style really begins. Our status as designed image bearers of God does not excuse our every action, but rather it empowers them to come in line with the underlying truths of our reality. All that nonsense about karma and reciprocity and the secret that you've heard about putting out good energy and good vibes, that if we put good thoughts and good actions into the world, then good things will come our way, that's a good example of the ways in which human beings across culture and time have resonated with these rules of reality. Probably didn't think that's where I was going to go, right? Because I called it nonsense. It is nonsense. You know why? Because it doesn't make sense when you don't start with God. But does it make sense? Is there a system of reciprocity? Is there grace at work in the universe? Absolutely there's, there's grace. It makes sense that you're going to have to recognize it if you're coming up with a system. Of course, those explanations that they give, they fall short. They fall short because they have stopped short in their understanding. They fall short because they stopped short. They suppress the knowledge of who God is. The world doesn't work in reciprocity because of a mechanism, but rather because the world is on a type of narrative rail system controlled by an author who excludes these virtues from the very nature of his own being. If you watched Culture Insanity, some of you did. We were talking about Russell Brand. And Russell Brand was talking about specifically good feelings. He's a... God, what is he? He's a movie star, comedian, actor, I don't know. But anyway, and he was talking about reciprocity, and he was saying the universe, the universe this, the universe that. We just have to... There's a relational aspect to the universe, and we just need to be good to each other and, you know, smoke a bowl together. Anyway, so <clears throat> what Russell Brandt fails to understand is, yes, 
that's true, the universe does work that way, but no, it doesn't work that way specifically without having a personality behind it. Oh, but Russell Brand does say that. He actually did. He says that there is a relational aspect to the universe. He refuses to call it God. He refuses to give it credit. This is my point. We understand things innately, even though we don't necessarily understand them specifically. All of our explanations fall short because they fail to account also. So, in one way they fall short because we suppress the knowledge of who God is. The other thing is that we fail to account for our own deviation. We're too prideful. We fail to account for the deviation that's sin. You want to know why communism doesn't work? Because of sin. You want to know why capitalism does work? Because of sin. Our explanations fall short because they fail to account for the deviation that is sin, which is a rebellious act that is so pervasive in its impact that it destroys all of creation, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but always inevitably. Except, of course, for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. His work on the cross in human history allowed men to meaningfully grab hold of the virtues of God, which they knew that they were meant to have but couldn't because of their sin. In other words, we know that we're supposed to be loving. We know that we're supposed to have joy in our life. Some people in this room have spent their whole lives knowing God. Some people have spent their whole lives knowing about God. Those of you who knew about God but didn't know God, ask yourself if what I'm saying is true. When you knew, of, when you knew about God, but you didn't actually know God, didn't you know that it was right to be loving? Didn't you know that you should have joy in your life? But you weren't capable at that point. Why? Because you didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as Christians, those of us now who do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is our responsibility to practice the virtues and the relationship that we have with him, and not just as mechanism, but as relational truths of our adoption into a family that holds those values in their DNA. You see, we understand that the way that we are supposed to operate in the universe is with that fruit. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, all of those things. We understand that we're supposed to act that way, not because that's the way the universe works, but because that's the way our Father is. And we have been adopted into His blood. And so therefore, we need to act that way. And we resonate that way. There are different ways of practicing our virtues. And just as Paul talks about the spiritual virtue that we must be exhibiting, remember I said he also talks about spiritual gifts. And these gifts are, of course, 
buried in method and application, but not in their display of God's virtue or adherence to his previous revelation. In other words, there is an adherence to God's virtue in the practice of those virtues. Let me say it differently. There is unity in diversity. Paul not only speaks of gifts, he also speaks of freedoms that each believer has the right to partake in. Galatians 5 starts off with this powerful statement. So Christ has truly set us free. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Say that again. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. See, here Paul makes a direct contrast between God's ability to save us through his own will, because he wants to, what we call God's grace, an unmerited favor, and man's aberrant focus on his own ability to forgive himself by working hard enough. Grace versus the law. How does he do this? He does this by contrasting the old Jewish system of laws with the free work of Christ on the cross. And then he makes that statement. So Christ has truly set us free, so make sure that you stay free. By verse 13, he sums up his point pretty nicely, honestly. And he says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. See, the key here is not mechanism. This is exactly the point. Stay free is what Paul says. The key here is not that we enter into a mechanism such as the Jewish people had before Christ. It's that we have a relational understanding built upon the way our Father, God, thinks of his people. And that understanding says that we do what's best for people. That we do what's useful for them. So the key to godly living, then, is not structure, although structure comes from it. It's relationship. And now, that reciprocity that we want, that we all resonate with, can make sense. Because Christ stands in the gaps that our sin creates. We don't have to help each other or do good things only to the degree that it benefits us now. Because instead of mutually assured destruction, which is pretty much how we operated before, right? That's essentially what it is. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, and then we'll move up in class and status and all of these things together, but I'm also going to hold a gun at the front that you can't see, <laughs> just in case you turn on me. Instead of mutually assured destruction, we have mutually assured benefit through Christ's 
willingness to pay for all of our debts on the cross. In other words, we can now truly be ourselves. We can now be ourselves freely and distinctly taking hold of God's image, practicing his virtues in our God-designed gifting and having a free mind to apply those virtues, whatever needs are required. This is the meaning of verse 13. You have been called to live in freedom. And it's honestly the background for, for instance, Abraham Lincoln's uh, words. Freedom is not the right to do what we want, but instead to do what we ought. Freedom actually creates diversity. This is highly important. It's a highly important background by which we begin this month's conversation about beautiful leadership. And see, this month we're speaking on the issue of diversity of leadership styles, right? And it's essentially a discussion on the many different ways in which a leader can be effective in producing the same essential outcome as a different leader. It's a, it's a discussion on, well, you guys really get the master course in it, right? Because you don't just have a lead pastor who preaches, but you have multiple pastors who preach and who lead. So you get to see this outworking. You get to, you get to have this discussion with us in how basically I can be as effective as Adam, Adam can be effective as James, James can be as effective as Colin, and so on and so forth. We, in history, can be effective as Pastor Monty. How the future generation of leaders can be as effective as us, but not be the same as us. Because that would be really boring. It's not a discussion, and we need to make sure that it stays here, it cannot be a discussion about a human's right to be loved by God under his own hubris and his own terms. It is first and foremost a discussion about the freedom for men to develop differently when they stand before a God who gives them a stable developmental set of virtues that are not bound to arbitrary humanism but rather to God's own relational character. It is about our ability to navigate, to grasp and command the gap between being a respectively sovereign image bearer of God and then also being bound to dynamically a rigid nature of God as a virtuous being. It's about understanding that there is a gap between the two things. That there is a gap between the freedom of Christ and the unchanging nature of God. And it's an old battle that should be resonant with us. All of us. It's the hero's journey. So to that end, I'm going to have Jacqueline play a clip. See if you resonate with this. Thank you. 
Most of you will recognize that clip. It comes from Captain America, the first Avenger. That's Steve Rogers, and he has no bulk on him. He's tried to join the military multiple times because there's a war going on, World War II, a fight against the uh, literal powers of evil. Um, <coughs> why does Steve jump on that grenade when the big, bulky, uh, perfect soldier, as the general was saying, doesn't? That's the question. Why does he do that? He does it out of a sense of duty. Despite being told that he was too small, despite being told that he was too weak to join the fight, despite being told that he couldn't function as everyone else, that he wasn't meeting all the qualifications that were set by the military to join the fight, to be useful, it's that moment where we gain a respect for that character. That's the moment where all of those people gained a respect for that character and us as an audience as well. When he's willing to jump on a live grenade. But those people who were conforming didn't. And why did he do that? Because he had a sense of duty to underlying virtues. Remember what was said by the general? Nice doesn't win wars. Apparently it does. So why did he do that? Was it because he didn't like bullies? It's more than that. It's because his writers imbued him with Christian values. His writers imbued him with a Christian value of the age coming up in World War II. At a time where the message that was coming across the ocean was the idea of a total conformity on the basis of self. Not on the basis of virtue. Not on the basis of a transcendent morality. But on the basis of self. Total conformity on the basis of self. Without knowing it, Marvel tells us a distinctly Christian story. Because of his heart, the doctor enables him then with the tools to become Captain America. A man who has freedom to practice those virtues, knowing that he will not impose them on others, that he will do what is useful for others. Knowing that a stronger man with lesser virtues, would not enable freedom, but instead would bully all people into slavery and subjugation. Our freedom comes with a responsibility to be virtuous according to God's relational character. And when we practice this virtuousness, no longer mistaking law for morality... Let me say that again. When we practice this virtuousness no longer mistaking law for morality, then we should produce a myriad of outcomes. As the Vulcans might say, infinite diversity in infinite combinations. So what do I mean by mistaking law for morality? That's a funny, sort of clever way of saying it. Mistaking law for morality. It's simple. What is legal isn't always moral. 
What is legal isn't always moral. Abortion, of course, is the prime example in our day and age. Legalize slavery. That was something that was legal. Was it moral? Was it virtuous before God? No. What is law is law because it's useful for the time, not because it's moral. Morality is defined not by the time, it's defined by transcendent values. Things that can't be locked into time and space, but can only be observed and practiced. This is the implication of the words in the Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. The American forefathers believed that all nations across space and time inherently resonate with the ideals contained in the Declaration of Independence and then ultimately the Constitution. And even if it was not legal, which it wasn't, right? It wasn't legal what they were doing because they were under the rule of the king. Even if it was not legal, they stood on the virtue that it was moral. And though not all of them were Christians... They all had a Christian consensus of philosophy. And that consensus was what? That God created all people free. So I say again, our freedom comes with a responsibility to be virtuous according to God's relational character, which then produces a myriad of paths to a unified, useful outcome. Multiple paths to a unified outcome equals a benefit to everyone. When all of the paths connect to the greater narrative of God's virtues. Instead of one way to accomplish God's work being the only way that we can accomplish God's work, instead you now have infinite ways in which you can create infinite opportunity paths for God's virtue to be connected to. In practice, that means more jobs, which makes a stronger economy. It also means better education for equipping those jobs. It also means better health system to address all the differences, and so on and so forth. In most situations, that would be unsustainable. The, the, the amount of rapid growth would simply be unsustainable. But because those paths eventually return to an infinite being, it's completely sustainable. And that's because it's sustained through the work of Christ on the cross. And because of Christ's work on the cross, man's selfishness, which is the other factor, becomes retarded by the work of the Holy Spirit in man's heart. And that is how you get utopia. God isn't interested in singular paths for the sake of rigidity. We can see this in the parable of the three servants. In Matthew 25, uh, verse 14 and on, I'll read it to you. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in a portion to the in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. 
The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. And after a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. And the servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, and so now I will give you many more responsibilities. And I like this part. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount of money, and so now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I'd lose your money, and so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, take the money from that servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So notice that the issue for the third servant is not that he didn't invest at all, Not that he didn't invest the same as the other two, either. The last servant is chided because he was not interested in what the master saw as valuable. See, he was trying to trick the master. He didn't understand who the master was. He didn't care about the master's virtues. He didn't care about the master's virtues nor did he handle the master's money, or because of this, he didn't handle the master's money as if he did care about the virtues or even knew the master at all. The master even says, well, if you really were thinking that, why didn't you at least put it in a bank? God isn't interested in singular paths to his outcome. Why? Because he's not rigid as much as the third servant would like to make him out to be. He gave them different amounts according to their own proportion, their own skills, and he was open to them doing things in their own way as long as it was in line with his virtues. God wants to enable multiple paths to his, and by extension, our success and glory. That's why you should consider, for instance, the covenants. Multiple covenants, not just one covenant. Multiple means of redemption. The disciples, not just one, not a master and apprentice like a Sith Lord. Or a Gnostic master and apprentice. But multiple disciples in order to be multiple direct voices to witness who he was. Multiple nations, not just the Jewish people. But God had the Gentiles in mind as well. 
Let's even throw Samaria in there. How about the gospel? The gospel wasn't given, the, the, the work of Christ wasn't recorded as a single book, even though we've compiled it that way now. It was given through multiple attestation. Why didn't God provide us a video of the events that happened throughout the whole of the scripture? I mean, that's basically how, this is a really sloppy way of saying it, but I'll say it anyway. That's basically how the uh, Quran is presented, that it's one singular revelation. Why didn't God do that? Why did he give us multiple writers over history, multiple different witnesses, even gospels that weren't completely the same, that needed to be harmonized? Why? Because God is not rigid. God uses multiple paths because it is the best way to produce a useful outcome to his glory. Though people have tried, that particular way that God does things makes his message incredibly hard to eradicate. It's like, this is a really bad example, it's like Hydra. <laughs> you cut off one head and another one grows back. It makes it hard to eradicate God's message across space and time. That method of enabling multiple paths toward a singular relational set of virtues. It's smart business, just as in the parable of the three servants. And that's not just because God is a good businessman. That, however, is a linguistically funny concept, right? Good, good businessman. A term which applies a moral value to something like business, the art of making money. How can you be a quote-unquote good business person? Is it by being moral, virtuous, by valuing the idea of stewardship and reciprocity? Sure. That's, why we, that's when we say somebody's a good businessman, right? When they value the idea of stewardship and reciprocity. Those are virtues. Even a term like a good businessman can be of use to us here because in it we see a demonstration of the truth, the one that we're illustrating, that in order to qualify as a quote-unquote good businessman, we have to then apply God's own character. Or at least we should. And that's why you can't have good without a transcendent standard. My students in the danger room should recognize that idea, right? A transcendent standard argument for who God is. So let's tie it all together. Yeah, let's, let's tie it all together. That good businessman that we're talking about is moral by a standard beyond himself. It's a virtue. That's what makes him good. And having that virtue then makes him good at business. And because he's good at business, he creates more business and more business opportunities. And not by following a rigid formula of machine-like uniformity, but instead by being dynam dynamic and shrewd in the way that he conforms. Not to methods, but to virtue. And in order for him to have that virtue, he has to get it from a transcendent source, another source. And that source has to be sustainable, and it has to be God. <clears throat> mostly because it takes too much energy to manage so much diversity on the beginning side of things, but also 
because to make that diversity conform to the virtue which it intends to connect to requires an infinite understanding for infinite diverse possibilities, and only an infinite thing could possibly manage that. Does anybody take notes on that paragraph? Think of it like this. An electrician. I've got Colin on my brain. <clears throat> think of it like this. An electrician running lines. Uh, I apologize if I butcher this example, but I think it works. To run power from one side of this building here at ABF, to run power from one side of this church to the other, we have to start with the source of that power, right? Which we get from the city. And then we have to run our lines all over the place. And if you go up into the attic, you can see there's lines just like everywhere. And that's just the lines that you can see, and that's not even all power lines, right? So we have to run our lines everywhere, through our walls, everything. And then, so then we, we start off, when we first build this place, we start off by installing a few outlets for power, right? So the end user can get the power that we're getting from the city by running these lines. Of course, the more the building gets used because we've run power into the building, what happens? the more things we start to use and the more we need to install more outlets, right? Colin, this is the bane of Colin's existence here as he picked being an electrician and now it's like every day we're asking him to install outlets, allegedly. So, how do we do that? Well, the more it gets used, the more power we need to get going. So then we need to either start from the source again and add more power from the source, which sometimes we do need to do, or we have to tap our power from one of the already existing lines of power. And eventually, what you have is hundreds of lines running around the building. And if you're like us, you may not even know how all of them connect back to the actual source. <laughs> but they all do, or they wouldn't have any power. We know that. All those lines, then, on the other side of it, lead to us, the end user. We're the end user. And what do we do to make sure that we can have access to that power? We pay the power company, which then supplies the power from the source down to us, and it becomes this system of reciprocity. Does that make sense? Now think about all the outlets in this church. Think about all the outlets in this church. There's a bunch on the stage. Actually, there's less on the stage than I'd like. Think about all the outlets in this church and the lines which create the sinews of the church's form, okay? All the lines that are running through the walls that you can't see right now or underneath. This is one building. It's a big building, but it's one building. Now, imagine that you had to manage all the buildings in this city, so not just this one building, but imagine that you had, your brain, had to manage all the buildings in this city and understand how it all connects back to the source. And now, move out from the city to the county. And now from the county to the state. And from the state to the country. And from the country to the continent. And so that's great. That's a lot to manage, right? Infinite diversity and infinite combinations, all going out from a source and going back to the source. Now, let's do that and break the boundaries of time and space. Because we're just talking about space. Now, let's go back over the history of installing power and running power lines. You've got to manage it all. That's history. Now, what about the future? 
That's a big task. You need an infinite being to manage just that. So how do we manage it? Well, we manage it by doing what? We manage it by teaching the next generation what we know and by hoping that they will maintain it. And the outcome of this is that our society has grown, in my lifetime anyway, from 3 billion to 8 billion. Because when you empower people to be useful according to the virtues that God sets, then people thrive. So what happens when we can no longer sustain it, that growth? Because that's what we're coming across right now, right? When we can no longer sustain that growth because there's too many lines and too many you know, power lines, too many production lines, too, too much um, medical lines, it becomes unsustainable. And so, again, I just want to harp on that point. We need to go back to God and stop trying to sustain things. Stop trying to use things based upon uh, other answers. And that's the problem that we currently face right now, right? The problem that we currently face and why there's so much conversation about uh, things like socialism, for instance, is because there's an unsustainable growth because we don't care about the virtues of God. We only care about the mechanisms of God. The truth is that there's no answer that can be founded on earth because though we are made in God's image, we are not God. So basically, we are not moral. We are not moral, though we know what morality is. We are not God, though we bear his image upon us. So that makes man a truly peculiar creature. But God doesn't have that problem, right? God doesn't have that problem. He promises an infinite kingdom with an infinite king to bridge the gaps that we exist in. And he frees us to use the gaps to create diverse pathways in his kingdom to see his glory fulfilled. And so we're going to end our exploration for today of how this benefits and works within the earthly context and ask, why? Why does any artist make art? See, Christ... is different. Our, our diversity as human beings, is, our diversity as human beings is not merely an outworking of entropy. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what that law is, the law of entropy? It basically means that things break down. Our diversity is not merely an outworking of entropy. We don't get beautiful designs because we let them rot, and so then that creates art. And, like, it's so beautiful because, you know, 20 years from now, a banana peel has changed shape, and look at how different it is. We do things by intent because we're made in the image of God who has intent. And so it didn't change because time plus chance made it change. It changed because God wanted it to change. And that's how we need to be, too. Our diversity is not merely an outworking of entropy. It's not a falling away from the superhuman standard of Nietzsche or the master race of a crazed Adolf Hitler. That's what they would say, you know. 
Why did Hitler want to kill the Jews? They were aberrant. There was the master race, and then there were all of these other races that developed that were impure. Everybody who has colored skin, for instance, like myself, we are impure, we're aberrant. We are the outworking of entropy. We're the falling away from the superhuman standard of Nietzsche. That's not how God thinks of us. That's not how we should think of diversity. We're not aberrant. We're custom pieces of art. Custom made and meant to distinctly display God's glory. So that as animals and angels pass through the hallways of the cosmos and look at us in history, they will marvel at God's sheer breath and volume of creativity. Each one of us a masterpiece. Each one of us a universe unto itself. Our messy system that's hardwired and bloody through coffins and placentas alike. By the sacrifices of mothers and sons is a testament of who God is. In his character. So, do we need diversity? Yeah. We absolutely need diversity. Do we need diversity without God's virtue? No. No. Because that's a death sentence. So next week we're going to explore the Trinity and we're going to talk about the image of God and what that really means and how we get an understanding of basically the justification for diversity within his image. Um, this week... I just want you to ask yourselves, you know, a few questions. So the first one is, I'm trying to decide if I want to reword it. Um, the first one goes back to what I had said before. Is your sense of diversity essentially just sloppiness? Is your sense of diversity an outworking of entropy? That you are just allowing things to change because over time things change? Or is it something that you make happen because it should happen? The next question is when you're thinking, when you come face to face with somebody who is diverse from, from you, from your standard of what is normal, do you ever ask yourself before you recoil in disgust if that person is diverse with God's virtue? Or are they, or, do you understand what I'm saying? It, it, do you ever ask yourself if, that, if your disgust is in line with God's virtue, and if they are in line with God's virtue? Or are you just disgusted because they have a different method than you? Um, yeah, those are essentially the two questions that I want you to ask, and then just think about how they apply to your time in, in the church and with other believers. And we'll keep talking about leadership structure. Thanks. Go discuss.